Hello, good morning everyone and welcome to Cultural Corner. We'll bring you, be bringing you interviews with mostly everyone related to culture, local authors and anything to do with the arts in Gibraltar. And we're very thrilled to have with us the, the author of one of the new books that's out there. It's Life and Times of John McIntosh. We welcome Richard Garcia. Welcome Richard. Hello. How are you today Richard? Very well indeed. It's very cold. Well, now it's actually getting better. The sun is coming out, so we actually no complaints about that. So we're going to dive into the book more than anything else. But before the book, obviously, we need to know your trajectory and everything that you've done. How does this one compare, would you say, to the others at the beginning to start off with? Well, this falls into a category of one of the types of books that I've, I've written. I've written a number of books on philately. I've written a number of books on postcards and collectibles. I've written some books uh, on families in Gibraltar, uh, such as uh, the Alwani family, the Basadoni family, the Sacone family, and the Speed family. So yeah. this fits into that particular bracket. And what, what is it about John McIntosh that's so captivating, would you say? Is it more... Obviously, we, like, we actually sat down in Drummond's Square, considerably enough, of all the places that we could choose. But, I mean, more than anything, it's more to know what he did behind the scenes and obviously what he did to help people. So tell us a bit more about that and obviously the research behind that as well. Well, I was very, very struck by the fact that we had this man, John McIntosh, who'd done such a huge amount for Gibraltar in terms of education, in terms of health, in terms of culture, and yet in the street, people knew practically nothing about him. So I thought it was important that that should be addressed and redressed. So that was really my motivation to, to get into uh, what Macintosh actually did. And I had assumed that uh, he was a coal merchant, period. Because everybody links the name of Macintosh with coal. But when I started to dig into the, the background, into archives and records, I found, in fact, that he was a much more complicated person and uh, he was involved in very many other fields and areas where he made his mark. He had a finger in every pie, let's put it that way. Not in every pie, <laughs> but the pies into which he had his fingers were very generous pies. Yeah, that's the best way to put it. When we think about Germanistus, you mentioned obviously like what he had done obviously for health and obviously the two for education and everything else. Obviously it was at a time where uh, practically funds were not, obviously governments nowadays would take it for granted. You go to them, to, to the related departments, relative departments, and you get, um, you get a grant or anything else. Back then there wasn't any of that. There wasn't that much funds to go by, but Germanistus lent his hand to help out those that went to, wanted to further their studies and everything else. Yes, and also Victoria McIntosh. Let's not forget yep. that she was a philanthropist in her own right. Uh, I've often described them as a power couple because I think that's what they were. John McIntosh died in 1940. Yep. And uh, Victoria McIntosh died in the late 1950s. So nearly 20 years later. So in the time between John McIntosh's death and her own death, Victoria McIntosh also spent a lot of money on very worthy causes, starting during the war in buying a Spitfire for the war effort, which yep. was named John McIntosh. And in fact, there's a photograph of that particular uh, Spitfire in the book. One book to definitely look out for. When we think about, you mentioned Mrs. McIntosh in particular, but obviously what people always people associate, we talked about it before, off record and before the interview, obviously people think Victoria Stadium, they think Victoria, but obviously it's named after her. 
Victoria Stadium, but that's something a little fact that people may know or might not know either at the same time. But uh, when we talk about these things that he, they both did, as you mentioned, the power couple, you know, they were just equal, they're both equally as helpful, as I say. Um, what was it more about him, like behind the, the scenes, I was you mentioned the research and everything else. What was it, one thing, one thing that you were most captivated by in your research, apart from the fact that he did so much? Well, there were a number of things that struck me very, very uh, considerably. In terms of coal, I was amazed to find that, that he had become the principal coal merchant uh, before the First World War, and uh, in the 1900s, 1914 period, he was already sort of the principal coal merchant, although the firm was called Crusoe and Macintosh. It wasn't <laughs> Macintosh's uh, firm in his own name. That didn't happen till after the war, the First World War, that is. And uh, what I found quite amazing in terms of coal was that he was actually interested in his labour force. The coal heavers at the time were sometimes Gibraltarian, some of them were of Maltese extraction but living in Gibraltar, and a lot and lot of Spaniards. And none of the coal heavers had a firm job. They were casual labour. They had to turn up on the day, and if they were chosen, then they had a job that day, were paid that day. If they were not chosen, there was nothing to put on the table. And Macintosh was one of those who was interested in their welfare and set up a welfare fund for yeah. uh, the, the coal heavers. And later on, when you found that there was a number of strikes, because the coal heavers organised some of the first strikes, the first industrial action in Gibraltar, very important, and um, they targeted some of the coal merchants, never Macintosh. Now, that speaks reams for the attitude of yep. the ordinary working man towards this very rich capitalist uh, who had a controlling share at one point of the coal industry. So that was one of the things that struck me. Other things that struck me were that he bought the gas company. And uh, this was a company that was ailing, was offered to the city council. The city council said, no, we don't want to buy it. And Macintosh said, I'll take it. And he made a profit, and he turned it around from being a loss-making entity yeah. into a profitable concern, which, after his death, was sold to the city council, who were then very happy to buy it. Yeah. So that was a complete reversal. He was also a director of Sir Conan Speed, yeah. and uh, was, in fact, uh, the chairman for a number of years. So that's a, a lesser-known aspect. But possibly he had an interest in Sir Conan Speed because his wife, Victoria, was a granddaughter of Jerome Sacconi. Well, interesting. So there was a family link there. And on top of all that, uh, he also uh, was um, a ship owner. He had ships, three ships built for him, new builds in Scotland, on the, on the Clyde. Now, to actually have a ship built for you and, and to be a ship owner and operate ships, that says something as, as to where you are. And on top of that, he bought a company in the UK, Thomas Seed & Co., which was a coal company. Yeah. So he would get his company, Thomas Seed, 
to supply coal, which are then carried on his ships from the UK, UK to Gibraltar, which then supplied the gas company, which needed coal to make the gas. <laughs> so he owned all the different cogs that made up this particular interesting. Uh, chain. So all the profit at every stage was his. So he was a far-sighted uh, businessman. And on top of all that, he's, he was one of the very first people to open a petrol station in Gibraltar and sell oil to, to ships. Which is more pioneering as well in some ways. So this indeed was a, a, a pioneering uh, thing. He introduced Shell to Gibraltar. He yeah. was the agent of Gibraltar for the Asiatic Petroleum Company, which is later Shell. It's incredible, like you mentioned, all these things. In just two or three minutes, you've described how much you did and how much people may not know about. How much research goes into this? Obviously, you mentioned obviously you have to go behind the scenes and national archives and everything else. But how much goes into it? Obviously, like to prepare notes and everything, or not just notes, but to make this information accessible to you. Well, it required sort of looking at newspaper archives, which is a tedious and complicated. Yeah. Uh, job, looking at the Gibraltar National Archive records and finding, for example, that um, the principal files on coal had all been destroyed in 1956 and there was a note from a civil servant, these files are no longer of interest, so they were all destroyed. So trying to piece together what those files might have contained was very, very challenging. Obviously, we won't get into it because obviously the book, I'm sure, has information on that as well. So, uh, the the book does, in fact, carry a lot of information on this, and it carries information on one aspect which I thought was very important, and that was that when the uh, British government decided to, to build the port of Gibraltar as we know it today, yeah. building the dry docks extending the South Mole, building the detached mole and the North Mole. The idea all along was that the North Mole would be for the merchants of Gibraltar. And in fact, the Gibraltar government was asked to pay for building the North Mole, which they started to do. Yeah. And then no long, as soon as the North Mole had been built, the Navy turned round and, uh, well, first of all, they, they the, the merchants were asked to produce a transition plan yeah. to get rid of all the hulks, which were uh, ships which were no longer sort of uh, used for sea journeys and yeah. were just anchored permanently in Gibraltar and were used for storage. And they were used for storage in particular of coal. So the merchants were asked to produce a transition plan to get rid of all the hulks and move all the coaling <laughs> onto the North Mole. And Macintosh was behind the, the production of this plan. And no, long, no, no sooner had the plan been produced than the Admiralty turned around and said, actually, we now want to keep the North Mole. <laughs> and so the merchants were denied the, the possibility of having the North Mole for, for commerce. And the, the Admiralty just took it over and paid off the amount that the Gibraltar government had paid for building the North Mole in the first place. It's like you mentioned, all forward thinking. Like they always had a plan, to put it that way. Indeed, and um, when the a governor in 1910, who was called Archibald Hunter, a dreadful governor, an absolutely awful person, he in fact was removed from office 
and Macintosh was one of those who went to London to assist <laughs> in the removal of this matter. And uh, Macintosh produced for him uh, a blueprint as to how coaling in Gibraltar should be done. And this is something that nobody knew about yeah. until I, I rediscovered it uh, in, in a folder in the Gibraltar National Archives, in somewhere where one would not have thought that that, that folder would be. So it, it was a very lucky find. It's a shame he wasn't a poker player. <laughs> he, he loved music. Yeah. He loved uh, company. But I, mean, I don't think that, that gambling was, <laughs> no. was something that, gambling that, in that, that mind, ever, ever sort of no. attracted him. But he was a, a very shrewd customer because he decided early on that he did not want to invest in property. Yeah. He decided that if you bought a property, okay, it would gain in value eventually, but it wasn't something that could be sold off quickly. No. It wasn't an asset that could be realized. So he preferred to put his money in stocks and shares. And then in uh, around about 1930, when the Companies Act was introduced in Gibraltar, you could actually start to register companies in Gibraltar, yeah. which you couldn't do before that. So in fact, his earlier companies had been registered in London, because he couldn't yeah. register in Gibraltar. So he set up a company in Gibraltar, and he decided to transfer a lot of the shares that he had in his own name into the company's name. And the value of the shares that he transferred in the early 1930s, so the face value was 1.25 million pounds. Well, so that was then. So <laughs> a lot of money then. That, that, that was at, at least uh, 40, 40 to 50 million today. Yeah. So it was a huge amount, and that shows how successful he was yeah. in terms of playing the stock market. When shares were at a high, he'd sell, and uh, he'd identify ones that were not were underperforming Clever. but were going to improve and invest in those and he did very very well he played his cards right in every sense of the word and he had a very good stockbroker to help him <laughs> that's always very interesting to know how much of value would you say then when it comes to obviously like he, we, he mentioned a lot of people when it came to grants and obviously to, for people to further the studies which obviously like we mentioned about funds and everything else but a prime example as to how much you have to give someone to maybe further their studies, for example. But the granting of money to further studies was actually something that John Macintosh did not do. Yeah. It was Victoria Macintosh who did. She was the chairman of the, the committee that decided how many scholarships to give in any year and who was going to get them. So uh, it was Victoria, yeah. knowing that her husband... Uh, wanted to support education, uh, who used some of the money of the estate yeah. in order to help young, bright Gibraltarians to further studies at a time when the government only gave something like two scholarships a year. Yeah. So Macintosh gave more, and that was re really the stepping stone for many people. Yeah. to obtain professional qualification and going on to do terrifically well in a wide range of fields. It's always very interesting to know more than anything else because more, 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 we take it for granted nowadays because everything is so accessible, obviously email or a call or WhatsApp or anything else. But how accessible were they to be able to approach for, for these grants in particular, especially Mrs. McIntosh? Both John McIntosh and Victoria McIntosh were immensely approachable. And... Uh, 
there, there was always a steady stream of people knocking at their door, <laughs> uh, asking for assistance. Now, John McIntosh, during his life, helped a lot of people, but usually uh, he would grant people uh, a loan which had to be repaid yeah. with interest, but the amount of interest depended on who the person was and their ability to pay. So that people valued what they were being given, yeah. but he would give money where, for example, a bank would not. Yeah. So in that sense, he helped a lot of people. Also, he was more discreet because you went to a bank then, uh, yeah. Walter knew that uh, you, you had an issue. He was very, very uh, discreet about things like that. So he helped a lot of people. And Victoria followed in her husband's uh, footsteps in that regard. And it's got to be said that one always thinks of John McIntosh as having been born with a silver spoon in his mouth, and he was not. Yeah. Because what I discovered when I started to look at his family history was that the father died before he was born. Oh, right. His mother was pregnant, was six months pregnant when the father died. Now, she was only 23, I think, at the time. She had two girls, and she was pregnant with her third child. And for a woman in 1865, to be in that situation was precarious. Yeah. Now, uh, the John McIntosh's mother, um, she was called Adelaide, and um, her father had died uh, before Macintosh, just a couple of years before Macintosh. So she couldn't turn to him for help. She had brothers, and the brothers did, did help out. But unfortunately, John Macintosh's father, also called John, John Macintosh, didn't leave a will. Now, usually, what businessmen did in the 1860s, died, John McIntosh Sr. died in 1865, what businessmen usually did was they would leave their business interests in trust to trustees who would then run the business and uh, provide the capital, provide the, the, the profits uh, to the beneficiaries, usually the widow, yeah. the children, uh, to educate the children, to allow so, the, the widow yeah. uh, a reasonable uh, life. And he didn't do that. Now, in 1865, a 23-year-old woman could not run businesses in Gibraltar. No. It just was not the done thing. So it meant that all the business that Macintosh had built up just dissipated. Yeah. And after the money had gone, it was gone. So Macintosh worked as an employee of his uncle. So this was not sort of somebody who was sort of a, a born to a, a business empire. Yeah. He created everything that he did single-handedly from zero. Yeah. And that, I think, is a tremendous is. achievement, a, a, a great thing to remember about him. Yeah. And it's very important as well. You mentioned the, the fact, obviously, his mum was single in the late 1860s, going on to the 19th century. Well, in the 19th century, rather. Um, but it's always always very interesting when we hear about people like John McIntosh, who, obviously, like you mentioned, wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth, obviously started the business, or started to trade, I want to, want to say, from the ground up. 
Is it more of a case to give back to their parents or to his mother, for, or like like many others, because obviously funds weren't as accessible as they were back then? As a token well, of appreciation, as well. His mother uh, remarried eventually, and uh, Macintosh, John Macintosh, was actually educated in London. And uh, I really feel for him, because he was sent to a, a boarding school, and uh, he was boarding in the house of the headmaster together with another student. <laughs> so that can't have been a, no. a, a bundle of laughs. And um, his sisters also, because he had two sisters, again, we never really hear about him, no. John Macintosh's sisters. And he had two elder sisters, and they were educated in the UK as well, and stayed in the UK, never came back to England. And uh, Macintosh did come back, and by the time he came back, uh, his mother at that point was about to remarry and she then moved with her new husband William Blasford back to UK so he was sort of living here more or less on his own with his uncle and his cousins uh, close by because they they lived at the top of um, uh, library ramp at the junction with Prince Edward's ramp at the time, Prince yeah. Edward's Road now. So they lived at the corner house there. And um, Macintosh really sort of... I didn't feel, from what I was reading, that, that he he felt particularly close to his mother. Yeah. And, and uh, his mother seemed to be a bit of a distant presence. And he seemed to have been sort of closer, in a way, to his uncle with whom he worked yeah. and his cousins what was it about him would you say about that want influenced him perhaps about giving back well Macintosh uh, married Victoria Caniba and uh, she was the granddaughter of Sigoni Jerome Sigoni and um, they had one daughter Adelaide yeah. and uh, uh, unfortunately, their daughter uh, developed uh, mental illness and she was uh, institutionalized for uh, her adult life. So, when Macintosh was getting older, I'm sure that he had long discussions with his wife and he decided, well, I don't want to put my wife or my daughter in a situation where they need to manage a large fortune, yeah. which is a complicated thing to do. And um, he decided that it was better to set up a trust where the money which he and his wife together decided yeah. would be given to the people of Gibraltar. And uh, the trustees were his old power from Sikono Speed, uh, Pepe Patron, and Joseph Patron is in fact the first speaker, so Joseph Patron is yeah. the first speaker of, of uh, the House of Assembly in Gibraltar, yeah. in Gibraltar. And so he, he got him, and he got also um, his friend, um, Savignon, who had been the uh, managing director of his oil business in Gibraltar, right. together, Patron and Savignon, to be the trustees of the trust, of the trust who would 
care for the, the money and call in all the assets uh, because there were assets also in Spain yeah. and uh, then ensure that Victoria had everything for the totality of her life and the daughter she would have she'd be very well cared for yeah. and then after the death of both the wife and the daughter then the money would go into the trust and could then be spent for the ends to which the trust had been created for educational, cultural, health and so on. Which continues which to do why, to this day. Which is why Victoria Macintosh died in the late 1950s. That's why Mount Alvernia and uh, the Macintosh Hall, they were all products of the mid-1960s. Because yeah. that's when the money had come back into the, in, into, into the trust. Yeah. And obviously the trust is still going today, which not many people may be aware about, but they give also grants for education and so on. Obviously the, the application process is on their website, which we'll link you to, to any aspiring student. But when we think about Dramatosh and anything else, we, talk, we talked about it before the interview and anything else, but why isn't there enough known about John Macintosh, would you say? He was a very private person. And we are at the stage now, he died in 1940. Now, 1940 is now 83 years ago. So it means that nobody in Gibraltar yeah. can remember him because those who are alive today, who are over 83, would have been children uh, yeah. when he died. So they wouldn't really have known about the man. So it means that he's dropped below the radar. Yeah because of the passage of time. And Victoria Macintosh is still remembered by a lot of the older uh, people in Gibraltar, but again, they are now getting older, and in due course, that memory will also be lost. So it was important to record now so that the the, the tremendous uh, good that was done by John and Victoria Macintosh for the people of Gibraltar yeah. would not be forgotten. And we'd learn something about what they did and about their life. And they, they lived very comfortable lives because uh, they were very rich and they enjoyed their money. But they were also tremendously kind and great benefactors and tremendous philanthropists. And we're hoping that that's what the book achieves for future generations to learn more about both of them, not just John and Victoria, but everything that they did. And obviously we talked, about, we spoke about it even more about this sort of record, but obviously you're also lobbying for something to be done in their honour as well. You're lobbying, lobbying for something to be done in their honour. Well, I am rather disappointed that the only uh, thing that we have in a public place to remember John McIntosh is the bust, a small bust which can hardly be seen because it's stuck in a niche which was created uh,